We're going to read from the Word of God, and I want to read uh, two passages of Scripture today, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And I want to read from Psalm 131. It's only three verses. Let's hear the Word of God together. Psalm 131, reading, of course, from the authorized version, and then I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 18. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, we read, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offences, for it must needs be that offences come. But woe to that man by whom the offence cometh, wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Psalm 131. And my theme today is the confession of a converted and contented child of God. Psalm 131 is a very short psalm, only three verses. But it's also a very sweet and sublime psalm. As I've said, it is just three verses. And this is indeed is one of the lovely psalms of David. It is one of 15 consecutive psalms, each one titled a song of degrees. Now that word degrees can be translated ascents. And it is believed by all believing, believing 
conservative scholars that these 15 psalms were sung by pilgrims on the journey uphill to Jerusalem. You see, three times each year, according to the word of God, the children of Israel came from every corner of the land of Israel and elsewhere they were located. And they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts of the Lord. They would come for Passover, for example. They would come for Pentecost. They would come for the Feast of Tabernacles. And no matter where they traveled from, you had to literally, geographically, and physically come up to Jerusalem. It was a hard uphill slog, a steep day-long climb to get up to Jerusalem. I want you to think of the terrain back then in the first century, before the modern road structure came into the land of Israel. Let me illustrate. For example, the city of Jericho was about 16 miles as the crow flies to Jerusalem, but Jericho was 1,200 feet below sea level. And the Temple Mount is 2,450 feet above sea level. And so the journey from Jericho up to Jerusalem was a long, hard, steep uphill climb. That's a very big rise in elevation. Other pilgrims from Galilee, where Nazareth and Capernaum were located, would have a good two or three day journey from where they started to, to get to Jerusalem. And of course, the last leg of the journey took them up the steep road from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was known as the Jericho Road. Uh, that was where the Good Samaritan event took place. And along this windy uphill road, the children of Israel were to prepare their hearts for worship. And they would sing these 15 psalms along the road. Someone has suggested that if you were to sing one psalm every 30 minutes approximately, then by the time you would reach the 15th, the last song of degrees, you were about to enter into Jerusalem itself and prepare, of course, to, to enter into the great house and sanctuary of the Lord. Now, Psalm 131 is one such of these pilgrim psalms. Notice the title. It says, A Song of Degrees of David. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has described Psalm 131 to be like a beautiful peril. It's, of course, easy to see and easy to read, but I want to tell you it's harder to study and it contains a very hard lesson for the children of God to learn. And the real lesson from Psalm 131, I believe, is this, is a, a genuine confession of King David as a saved and satisfied child of God. For we see here in this psalm the, the childlikeness of true faith, personifying itself in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of honesty, in a spirit of happiness, in a, in a spirit of hope before the Lord. Who amongst the children of men can say, my soul is even as a winged child? So that's what we're thinking about this morning. Psalm 131, and we're thinking of the confession of a converted, contented child of God. I want us to think of three things. I want us to think, first of all, of the profession of David's faith. He says in verse 2, Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child. You see, this is King David's personal testimony. He is thinking of himself as a true child of God. He is thinking of the day and the time and the place 
when he was enabled to lay hold upon the Lord by the gift of true saving faith. And he has to be thinking of the childlikeness of that true saving faith. You see, it says in Psalm 71, verse 5, this is what King David said in earlier times, Psalm 71, verse 5, For thou art my hope, O Lord God. Thou art my trust from my youth. You see, King David is in a believing state before the Lord. And it's in that believing state that gives rise to the condition and the conduct of a soul. He's able to say in truth because he's saved, my soul is even as a winged child. Is that not the theme of Matthew chapter 18? Remember that question to the Lord Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Think of the disciples. Well, who's going to be the top dog? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Is it one of the other disciples? Now, when the Lord Jesus heard that question, what did he do? The answer is, according to Matthew chapter 18, verse 2, that he called a little child unto him, set the little child in its midst, and listen to what he said to them in Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, The same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The word verily there means truly. Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, this little child that the Lord Jesus set in the midst, I believe is symbolic of all true believers. Not just little children themselves, But everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a true child of God. Remember what we read in John's gospel in um, John uh, chapter 1 and in the verse 12. We read there, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but of God. You see, the new birth is not hereditary. It's not of your own will. It's not by the will of the Pope or the priest or the preacher, but it's of God. Remember, Jesus said to Nicodemus, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born of God. And you see, in order to be truly converted, saved from sin's power, penalty, pleasure, and one day from its presence, and enter in under the rule and reign of God, we need to humble ourselves before God as little children. God's people are to be childlike in spirit. You see, whenever I connected up in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, the Lord Jesus said, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me? You see, here's the point here. True saving faith, real belief in him is inherently childlike. Real, true, genuine believers 
have therefore an implicit faith and trust in the Lord, just like the trust that a child has when that child looks to its parents, especially the mummy, to meet every need. I believe, of course, today that the Lord Jesus has a special care and love for the children, and we love the children connected to the house of God. We pray for many more. I believe that children who die in infancy, I also believe that little children who have been murdered in the womb by abortionists, I believe that those little children and their precious souls go immediately to heaven and they're saved by the power and the grace of God. But, but that's another subject. But I believe it's, a, it's referred to in Matthew chapter 18. Now, you think of this childlike faith. And that is exactly how we're to look to the Lord. We're to look to the Lord with an implicit childlike faith in him. You see, before you could, as the psalmist says, I have behaved and quieted myself as a child. Before you can behave um, quietly and wisely before the Lord, you, you must believe in him. Think of John 3 and 16. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Think of these words. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. The word believeth there is in the present continuous tense. It means I have believed and I am believing and I am keeping on believing. You see, it's not just a decision of a moment. It's the principle of a whole life. The Christian life is a life of faith. Habakkuk says the just shall live by his faith. And true saving faith is the gift of God. It's not natural to us. It's a gift implanted within us by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 and 8 and 9. For by grace he is saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. And I want to ask you this morning this question as you're listening to me. Do you have faith in God? Was there a time in your life when you got down on your knees and you cried out to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord, save me, I perish. Remember, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you, like David, are you able to say in truth this morning? Because this is where it begins. Oh, Lord God, thou art my trust, my youth. You see, he trusted the Lord as his own and personal savior, his personal shepherd, his personal friend, the lover of his soul, whenever he was a teenager. And, and I call upon you teenagers, you young girls, you young men that are listening to me this morning. I, I, I asked you this question. Can you say this today, speaking of the Lord? Oh, Lord God, thou art my trust for my youth. You see, you've got a soul. You need to be saved. You need to repent of your sin. I need to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Here's David. And he's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And what's he doing? He's laying bare his heart here before the Lord in the psalm. And it is a heart that has come to understand. And appreciate the beauty of possessing a humble, compliant, childlike faith in the Lord. And I'm asking today, is that true of you? 
Can you say with Paul in 2 Timothy at chapter 1 and verse 12? Remember, he says, For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. There's a story told of D.L. Moody. He was asked the question one day by an individual, which persuasion are you? Of course, the man wanted to know, well, are you a Methodist, a Presbyterian, an Anglin, a Roman Catholic, a Pentecostal? Well, here was D.L. Moody's response. He was a very witty man. He says, I'm of Paul's persuasion. And the man says, well, I've heard of Methodism and Presbyterianism and Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism and Pentecostalism, but I've never heard of Paul's persuasion. And then he quoted this text, for I know in whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. You see, it is faith in Jesus Christ. Boys and girls, young people, listen to me carefully. It's not faith in yourself. It's not even faith in the church. It's not the church that saves. It's faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his atoning blood sacrifice in Calvary, and his bodily resurrection, and and trusting in Christ alone brings you into a right and personal relationship with God. And that very faith that unites you to Christ as a humble, childlike, honest faith. And all that are saved, everyone that has faith in God and faith in Christ, well, they're viewed and looked upon as the adopted children of God. They are part of his family. And that there is David's profession of faith. But notice something else as you think about the text. Notice the picture of David framed. Because David is addressing the Lord here in prayer. Look at the first word, Lord. It's in capitals. He's thinking about Jehovah, the God of the covenant. And he's telling the Lord, first of all, what he's not like. He says, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. And then he comes to something positive. He said, surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. So he thinks of himself, first of all, negatively, tells the Lord what he's not like, and then he begins to tell the Lord what he is like. My soul is even as a weaned child. Think of a child resting in the arms of its mother. And that's the picture of David framed here. Think of it negatively. Lord, my heart is not haughty. David here is declaring his humility. And he does it in such a way that I believe he's not boasting. You see, true humility is a a wonderful and necessary virtue. But let's be honest, it's a very evasive virtue. Isn't it easy to be proud of our humility? We often think, well, we have attempted to mortify our self-righteousness. We've mortified our self-importance. We've mortified our self-reliance. And we're free of pride. And then, of course, we become proud of our humility. And that pride will rise up and tell us how wonderful and meek and humble we really are. 
But as I have read this and read C.H. Spurgeon and uh, James Montgomery Boyce of 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania, King David is not saying this in a very boastful way. It's not a boastful claim. He is not being full of swagger. He's not saying, listen to me. He's not even saying, look at me. I believe here is David's wonderful, thankful testimony as a man of God who, who deeply feels his total indebtedness to God's divine grace at work in his life. Do you remember that King David never schemed or conspired to become king? He never set out with the goal that I'm going to attend to be greatness or, or I'm going to make a name for myself. You see, remember, the kingdom was given to David by God. David became king and was anointed king under the hand of God. And David is telling us here, my heart is not haughty. That, that means he's, he's not a proud man. He hates pride. He hates the proud look. He, he repudiates that. He hasn't got a haughty heart. He wasn't like the Pharisees in Luke 18 verse 9 who trusted in sales that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. David tells us something else negatively about himself. He tells the Lord in prayer, Lord, nor mine eyes lofty. What, what does that mean? He means he hasn't got a an arrogant countenance about him. He hasn't got an arrogant look. He's, he's not looking at others and, uh, and treating them with contempt and thinking I'm better and I'm holier and I'm greater than them or, or walking about with his chest stuck out saying, I'm the king. Notice also he says, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. The word exercise, according to the margin here in the King James Bible, is the Hebrew word for walk. And it ties into Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Neither do I walk myself in great matters or in things too high. And the word for high there in the Hebrew means wonderful. Now, now think of that. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. In other words, he's not full of egotism as far as his heart and mind is concerned. As I've told you, the Hebrew uh, word uh, exercise is translated um, to walk. And in other words, he's not walking through life full of a very ambitious spirit. I believe, of course, that true humility will tame the heart. It will tame the lofty eyes. It will be a guard and a guide to our feet. Heart, remember, is the very seat of our pride. The lofty eyes is how pride shows itself in a very visible way. Think of the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and, and the pride of life. And, of course, the, the feet are an indicator of our actions, of our, our ambition. And, and this true humility reflected itself in David's heart. And, and, and it affected his very lifestyle. It, it framed his thoughts and, and ambitions and his activities. See, this was the divining character of David's heart and life before the Lord. Doesn't the Bible tell us there in the book of Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and in the uh, verse um, 
6, isn't it? It says in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves therefore. Why? Because it's written. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. The exhortation is, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now, it's important that you grasp that this morning. Remember, David has got a new heart. David is full of the awareness of the Lord. He's before the Lord's face. He's in his presence. Here he is in an attitude of prayer. And he's pouring out his heart before the Lord. And he's telling the Lord that his heart is clean. It's humble. It's, it's holy before him. It's not haughty. It's not lifted up with pride. See, David recognizes that all he has in life has come from the Lord. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and in the verse uh, 7. He, 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 he tells us this. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou had not received it. You see, what have we got to be proud about this morning? The answer is nothing. All that we have comes from the Lord. Our physical strength, the gift of mental intelligence. What about life itself? What about the gift of family? The money that we have, the job that we have, the talents that we have. You see, they all come from the Lord. And if you're a Christian, and even God is using you as a channel of blessing to other people, you see, it's God that's using you, and it's all traced back to him. And we cannot take the credit, we must not take the credit for anything, because it's all rooted and rests in God's good free grace. Pride is the opposite. You see, pride is full of self. Pride is forgetful of the Savior. But, but a truly humble soul, he has a meek and gracious lowly spirit. Let me illustrate. You've heard of the missionary John Patton. He was the missionary to the new outer Hebrides, away in the bottom end of the earth. And in his autobiography, he tells the story of how he went there when there were Islands were just full of savages and cannibals who would have ate you alive. And after many years of labor there, he was able to report that whole islands had been converted. And many individuals had been conquered by the king of grace and brought into the kingdom of God's grace and glory too. In 1901, he was home. He was at the missionary Edinburgh Convention. And thousands were there, and they, they rose up, and they cheered, and they clapped, and they hailed him as a great missionary, the, the greatest of all time. You know what he wrote in his autobiography? That welcome brought me very low. That welcome made me feel so humbled. I thought to myself as I stood there, what have I to be proud of? To God be the glory. You see, the Lord did it all. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And you see... John Patton stood there thinking, but I'm nothing but an unprofitable servant before the Lord. And I want to say this morning, if God has saved you, 
then it's all of God's grace. If God has blessed you, it's all of God's grace. If God has used you, it's all of God's grace. Remember, everything is from the Lord, and to his name be the glory. And it's wrong to have lofty eyes. Could I tell you as well, it's wrong to have a presumptuous mind. Here's the psalmist, and he's telling us, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or things too wonderful for me. How many want to inquire into great matters? You think of the mystery of God and dark providences. You see, God doesn't have to share his secret ways with us. The, the secrets of the Lord belong to the Lord. They may be mysterious, but he makes no mistakes. And over there in the book of Romans, remember what we read in Romans chapter 11 and in the verse 33, and the Apostle Paul uh, made this uh, tremendous statement. He said this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Let me tell you another little story. There was an inspector one time came to a school. This was a Christian school for deaf and dumb children. The inspector cruelly came up to the front and he wrote up on the board, Why has God given me speech and hearing and not to you children? Of course, everybody sat and they looked at the board for a little while and eventually one boy got up and he asked the teacher for some chalk or indicated to him that he would take the chalk. And this is what he wrote up on the board. Matthew eleven twenty six. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Was not a beautiful answer? Was not a rebuke to that man? You see, there's much that we don't understand. We are finite creatures. We have finite minds. And God is infinite. And there's much that we do not know. And it was the psalmist that said in Psalm 139 and in the verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. And, and it was Moses that said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And you know, that's true this morning of the doctrine of election and the doctrine of human responsibility. Spurgeon said, You can't and don't reconcile friends. That's true of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a mystery to us. But we bow the knee to the revelation of God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal and co-existing. It's true about the great doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the mystery of him becoming the God-man, two natures in one body forever. We, we can't really understand that. What about the mystery of the doctrine of the fall? How Adam was inclined away from true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness to, to sin, bringing human sinfulness into the world, or even the fall of Lucifer from heaven. You see, there's things in the Bible that we cannot and do not understand. Isn't this what Peter made reference to in relation to Paul? He says there in 2 Peter chapter 3 and in the verse 16. Listen to what he says. And also in all his epistles, speaking in them of those things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Even those things that we don't understand. 
We're not to have a presumptuous mind. We're not to look into greater high matters, things that are beyond us and outside of us, but we bow the knee to those things that God has revealed of himself. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them are the called according to his purpose. But as we think of this psalm, think not only of it negatively, but think of him positively. What does he say there? My soul is even as a weaned child. Think of the description here. Think of a a child being weaned from his mother's milk to solid food, six to seven months old. You mothers who are out there with nursing babies, you know that that's not an easy process. And that's the picture that the psalmist has here. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. Not only think of the description here, but think of the distress here. You, you think of the look of a child not getting milk, pushing the spoon away, spitting the food out, screwing up the face, turning his head away, the, the look of distress. The child's annoyed and upset. There's a cry, there's a clamor for milk. And what does the mother do? Well, she has to be patient. She has to be keep trying. This is a big event. In the life of the child. This is traumatic for both the mother and the child. You take away the bottle. Even from the child. Or you mothers try to take a, 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 a pacifier. Or we would call it a dummy. Uh, from a child. Well you've got three options. You can take it away and remove it completely. And let the child go through cold turkey and cry and clamor. You could dip the uh, pacifier in vinegar and embitter the thing and the child would hate it and spit it out. Or you could replace it with something else, maybe a cuddly toy or a blanket and something more suitable. And here's David. And you see, that's the description that he has. And he's thinking of that distressing process. And he's saying, my soul is even as a weaned child. Isn't there a difference between an unweaned soul and a winged soul? Let me ask this morning, what if the Lord were to take something away from you or me? Would that not be the beginning of a new phase, which God would deem like a mother is good and necessary for us? What do we do in such circumstances? Do we cry and complain? Or do we learn to submit? Do we behave ourselves quietly? Do we accept it, that it's for the best? I know that the end of an era is hard to cope with. Uh, whenever we experienced in the Free Presbyterian Church the death of our leader, the late Dr. Paisley, uh, that was hard, and it's still hard. We, we do miss the Lord's servant. You, you think this morning of the death of a loved one. You think of the loss of a job and you face redundancy. You think of the breakup of a relationship, the loss of your health. What about the loss of a dear friend that's been a friend for many years and they turn their back on you and become your enemy? You see, what's happening? Well, well that's a weaning process. And of course, it's, it's not easy. And, and, and there's much that we don't understand and, and there's a distress and there's a cry. But we have to say that like the mother who wings the child, the mother knows what's best for the child. And the Lord knows what is for our good. He's the one that does the weaning in a spiritual sense. My soul is even as a weaned child. And I must confess, I don't fully even grasp that picture yet. I would love to have had more time in that. 
Not only is there a description here and a distress here, but I believe there's a delight here. You see, I'm thinking of the mind of the mother. And that's a faint reflection of the mind of God. The mother deals with the child physically. God deals with us spiritually. You see, the child won't wean itself. The child, if it's not weaned by the mother, would never be weaned. That's the role of the mother or the role of the parent. You think of the child being fed by the mother, the comfort and security of the mummy's milk, and then being weaned off. This is a necessary process. It's a long process. It's a starting point. But it it also has an end point. And in the Christian life, it's a lifelong process. The children of God find the weaning process so difficult. It happens daily and we maybe don't know it. It's happening weekly. It's happening um, monthly. It's happening yearly. This weaning process is going on. And how does the Lord do this? Well, he takes this and that away. And it's painful. And it's hurt. But it's done in love. Just like the mother takes the milk away. Or reduces it down. Or or takes the pacifier away. or, Or the dummy as we would say. It's done in love. What if the Lord takes us away from all that we hold dear? Strips away our self-righteousness, our self-seeking, our self-esteem. Takes away our riches and leaves you impoverished state. Isn't it the worldview of men that they love power and they love prestige and they love riches? And You, you think of David as king and how many in Israel would, would love to be king. David didn't crave it. Craving something is the opposite of true humility. But David was able to say, my soul is a weaned child. He was being truly noble when he said that. He was being truly great when he said that. You see, a weaned child is a calm, quiet heart. The soul is at rest. You think of the the sleeping child who's well fed. It's got no fear, no distress. The mother's there. The mother's meeting every need. And the child's not kicking or screaming or resisting. The child's accepting. The child's trusting. The child's submitting. The child doesn't see this as a bad thing, but it's a blessed thing. And it's a hard lesson to learn. And that's the picture that's being framed here negatively and positively. But think finally this morning. Of the proclamation of David that's featured. He says in verse 3. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. He's thinking not only of the true spirit of humility. And not only thinking of spiritual maturity. But he's thinking of the absolute security of the saints. Let Israel hope. Hope in what? Hope in who? Here's the answer. Hope in the Lord. The child of God that's truly humbled. And the child of God that's truly hushed in the arms of one's heavenly father. And the child of God that is truly fed and satisfied. Will be a hopeful child. I I think of the anchor. I think of the motto of the boys brigade and the girls brigade within the Presbyterian institution. Sure and steadfast. And and isn't that the hope that the Lord gives? That hope that sure and steadfast is is an anchor to the soul. 
There's an absolute dependence on the Lord. There's an unquestioning trust in him. This is not a a might-be-maybe kind of hope. This is not something that will not come to pass. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth, from now, from this time. But not only for this time, but for the rest of time. Oh, I asked you this morning, you think of our title, the confession of a converted and contented child of God. Do you ask yourself this morning, have you got a profession of faith in Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Can you get this picture that's framed of David into your mind, what he's not like? He's not haughty. He hasn't got lofty eyes. He's not got a presumptuous mind walking himself into great matters or in things that are too high and wonderful for him. But he's got an absolute dependence and quiet trust in the Lord. His soul is like a weaned child. He has gone through that process and it's continuing. And here's his proclamation that features. Let Israel hope in the Lord. Can you hope in the Lord today? Is it sure and steadfast? Is it real and genuine? You know, many people are without hope. Many people are in despair because of the circumstances and situations of life. And we would say to you, is there any hope? And here's the answer, there is. Hope in the Lord. Hope in in who God is and what God has for you. And allow the Lord to bring blessing and comfort into your life. I trust and pray that the Lord will bless these few thoughts to you this morning.